0: Welcome to the Gensler Design Podcast. The Gensler Design Podcast creates a dialogue between design experts, creative trendsetters and thought leaders to discuss how we can shape the future of cities through the power of design. I'm your host, David Calkins, the Regional Managing Principal of Gensler, Asia-Pacific and Middle East. Climate change is an existential threat to our way of life. There have been several recent extreme climate events, such as last year's bushfires and this year's flooding in Australia, the current record high temperatures of more than 40 degrees centigrade recorded since March in India's western state of Maharashtra that led to at least 25 deaths from heat stroke. These occurrences and others underscored the urgent need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Scientists say climate change in the form of extreme heat will affect more than a billion people in South Asia in the coming months. The race to net zero carbon emissions is on, but countries around the world need to pick up the pace. Since the built environment is responsible for an estimated 40% of global carbon emissions, it's vital for the building design and construction sector to do its part to limit global warming. With us today is Shravan Bendapudi, Gensler's Asia-Pacific and Middle East Regional Practice Area Community Leader. Shravan is also a studio director in Gensler's Bangalore office. He will talk about the opportunities and challenges that we had to overcome and the approaches that could have a pronounced impact toward net zero. Shravan, welcome to the podcast. To get us started, can you tell our listeners about yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you, David, so much. It's a real pleasure to be on this podcast. My name is Shravan. I am the studio director for the Workplace Studio here in Gensler, Bangalore. I'm looking to provide business leadership and overseeing all of the firm's workplace projects in India. Uh, really trying to uh, maintain a deep commitment with for strong client relationships, focus on aspects such as workplace strategy, data analytics, and culture transformation really as differentiators to how we provide more holistic workplace solutions here in India. I also lead uh, Gensler APME's consulting and real estate practice area within this region and also look at the design purpose community within the APME region as well. Of course, primarily looking at aspects such as workplace strategy, change management, post-occupancy valuations, and global guideline projects for clients. Really happy here today, David.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Shravan. This is a big important topic. Just to begin with, what do you see are the biggest trends that you're seeing impacting climate action and sustainable design, and in fact, now and over the next five years?
1: That's Oh, yeah, there's actually a lot going on. I think the exciting thing is that we're starting to see that there are probably bigger things or bigger movements starting to happen around this. So, for example, now there's a huge push towards ESG. You know, it started off earlier as just simple corporate social responsibility or just, you know, sustainability and how you could be more green. All of that is starting to coalesce into this much bigger purpose of how otherwise economic core parts of our economy, so to speak, um, are starting to become more responsible stewards of the community and what impact that they're starting on community is starting to come under a lot of focus. And, you know, it's kind of going as far as I, I remember this super meeting that we went to, I think it was in Denver, where they had this developer on and it was a great presentation about when they developed or redeveloped this retail district in this community, they really started to keep a track of metrics such as what was the impact on community health because of their redevelopment, were there additional hospital cases, was there a reduction in diabetes? was the impact on education and were there more graduates that were coming out of that community and even the levels of crime? So having this deep seated focus on what is the impact on community, I think, is a big, big area of focus that's starting to get a lot of traction. Another thing, I guess, is really around electric transportation. Uh, That's a really big one. I know for a lot of car lovers, I'm a big car lover. We were kind of like, oh no, the fun from cars is going to get taken away because of the coming in of electric vehicles. Um, that actually has proved to be just the opposite. The kind of strides that the electric vehicle industry is making both in terms of range as well as charging times is really significant in the past few years. And the big thing as far as uh, thrill for a car lover goes is that the thought those things put out is awesome. So huge acceleration, huge fun, as well as huge sustainability. I mean, that's the kind of move that really make the world a better place to be in.
0: Yeah. Teslas are really fast, Shravan. They are fast. <laughs> <laughs> they
1: are. And that's the thing. You see, the starting point was something like uh, a G Wiz, which people are like, oh, no, are we going down that road? And then the Tesla started coming out, and you know, all these exciting cars started coming out. And now it's the Porsches and the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris that are really kind of pushing towards electric vehicles. Everyone's really excited about it. So I, I think it's, it's great to kind of see that push coming and us trying to go Go to a more electric-oriented transportation future, I think it's really exciting. And I think part of that is also the opportunities that we're getting as a firm to be able to then design for uh, townships really around these electric vehicles kind of uh, uh, paradigms. So I think there was there's a project that's being co-designed by Gensler, the electric vehicle enclave. It's a net zero residential development, really looking to design integrate green energy technologies with a master plan that focuses on community as well as this new paradigm of transportation that we're really looking at. A third, then, I think is really around data, because a lot of decision making so far has been pretty linear as far as real estate has been concerned. I think what's happening now is there's a lot of technology that's starting to get integrated to try to make spaces more intelligent, really trying to leverage all the developments in the sensor space and the IoT space so that we're able to get real-time data uh, really around a lot of the spaces that we're designing to help us make more dynamic decisions. I think that's becoming really, really important so as to be able to make more responsible decisions going forward as well. And I think uh, some of the work that uh, New York office is doing through the Intelligent Places team is really kind of shepherding a future where that will be a big part of how we design for spaces going forward. So that's something that we're really looking forward to. And then finally, I guess the other big one is really this focus on net zero and carbon neutrality. I think, you know, the idea of how do we really look at the two aspects to this, right? So one is how do we try to reduce our carbon footprint in the first place through, let's say, more transformative means, such as trying to minimize the amount of new square footage that we're developing or, you know, trying to repurpose existing buildings as much as possible. And then on the other side, for the generation as well, um, how do we really look at generating energy from more Responsible sources from more renewable sources. I think these two things are kind of coming together. And so, from that standpoint, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of urgency in trying to reduce urban embodied operational carbon in the built environment. Regulations are becoming great tools to drive that momentum in the building market and advance compliance. I guess the next step for us is really to look at how do we leverage those regulations and the advantages that are being given in the short term to really try to pick up traction so that this becomes part of the norm as far as the building industry is concerned. There is traction happening, but I think pace does need to be more aggressive, especially in um, Southeast Asia, where some of the most rapid growth that's ever been recorded in human history is happening. So we really have an opportunity to be able to get it right the first time, but it is something that we're going to have to consciously do. I think we're, as Gensler, we're trying to really contribute to that meaningfully. I mean, I know last year we deepened our commitment to combat the impact on climate change in the built environment. And it's challenged the entire design industry to meet this ambitious goal for us to eliminate all greenhouse gases associated with the built environment. We have our commitments for 2030 that we're trying to make to get to a zero carbon position. All these things, I think, are big and ambitious goals that we've put in front of ourselves. I'm really excited to see what the next few years will mean in terms of the unfolding of all of these various things that are going on at a global scale.
0: Well, that's a lot of trends, uh, Shravan, and a lot of things that we're interested in as a firm and things that we're committed to changing and improving. But specifically in terms of clients at this point, what are your clients coming to you for right now and how are you helping our clients address those things?
1: So I think one challenge we often run into with clients is really aligning with them around a shared understanding. Because I think intention-wise, everyone is kind of saying that, say, they want to be able to make a more positive climate impact, they do want to be more sustainable, they want to try to be net zero if possible. I think these are a lot of times terms and really trying to understand what that means for each of our clients at a tactical ground level for decision making in terms of performance, in terms of outcomes, metrics. I think that is is one important thing that we are trying to address with our clients and there is a lot of conversation that we need to have around that and the other thing is you know really around i think expectations of what some of this vocabulary means so we keep talking about net zero well net zero has two parts to it Of course, we're going to need energy. We're not going to go back, you know, to the stone ages and live the way that our ancestors used to. But how can we reduce and become more efficient about the energy we use as well as start making more active investments into generating energy through sustainable sources? I think that is going to be a very, very big focus area for in terms of working through with our clients we're also seeing a lot of these clients kind of make big commitments, say carbon zero by 2030, 2040, 2050. I mean, there are different ways or different commitments that clients at different scales are really trying to make. And I think, again, helping them land those kind of big visions in terms of tactical uh, requirements, at least as far as the building industry is concerned, because for a lot of our, especially service-oriented clients, real estate and buildings are a big, big part of their carbon footprints. And so really for us to help translate to what these corporate commitments really mean at the level of buildings, spaces, real estate, I think is a big, big thing that we have to keep working with our clients on.
0: It's a big challenge for us, isn't it? We make grand commitments, but then really getting down to the nitty gritty, the details of how we implement those commitments. That's the challenge and that's what we're working with. Yeah. So... I came to visit you in Bangalore a couple weeks ago, and it's uh, easy to see that, you know, India is currently one of the fastest growing economies in the world, driven by a boom in personal technology, uh, a lot of tech there, and unprecedented creation of wealth that's going on. Is there a new template for development that India might follow that's different than the one followed previously by the currently, uh, you know, today's developed nation's? Um, I'm asking because it seems that the US and the UK and Germany and other developed countries are looking for new and more sustainable patterns of growth that could impact the uh, environment less negatively.
1: Yeah, that's actually the biggest challenge probably in front of us right now. Just trying to look at the scale of development that we have to have and at the same time trying to be responsible. So there are a few things. I think the good thing is, as far as um, the country is concerned, right up to, I'll say, beyond politics, as far as India is concerned, some things that whichever government comes in does tend to agree on as number one is, or we have very fundamental stakes that will come into play if climate change comes, or, you know, starts to become a reality more and more. So, for example... There are vast landmasses in uh, in India, especially in the eastern part of India, around West Bengal, Bangladesh, that area, that are very susceptible to rising sea levels. And there will be a great threat to livelihood in those uh, locations if the sea levels continue to rise over the next few decades. We still remain a largely agricultural, or not a largely, but a very large agricultural economy globally. So we're the second largest agri-producer globally. Um, we have about double, or we contribute double than what the average contribution of agri-producer around the world contributes. So changes in climatic patterns and an uh, in increased un- unpredictability in terms of what that impact would be on agricultural produce, I think is, go- is something that the government itself is looking at very, very closely. So there are a lot of circulars, a um, lot of studies that are going on that get circulated in terms of, you know, trying to warn, trying to call out what may be risk factors as we kind of go into the future as far as agricultural produce is concerned. A third is natural disasters. Uh, we've had about a 52% increase in cyclones over the past four decades. I mean, extreme rains that have caused, that caused floods have seen a threefold rise. I mean, with a nation that's really trying to elevate people out of poverty, natural disasters really start to play a big role in terms of undoing a lot of that progress. I and mean, so we do have to be very careful around that. And India, I think being a civilizational culture, an old culture, we have a, our way of life kind of revolves around the seasons, so to speak. You know, we have festivals that are anchored around seasons we have a festival holy which kind of heralds the you know the the arrival of spring um, we have harvest festivals that are celebrated in different parts of the country and there is a lot of how we prepare our food how we live our life day to day that really has to do with the seasons and so any kind of changes in climate cycles climatic cycles seasonal cycles weather patterns all of that is going to have significant kind of impact in just the way we live our lives so i think that's something that at least in india beyond politics we do understand that there are all of these things so I'll, you will see that there is broad consensus on these points david which is which is a good place to start from we don't have people fighting each other from two sides of the
0: aisle on this but we do have a lot of work to Given how high the stakes are, maybe a two-part question for you. So in your opinion, has India prioritized climate change in its development, uh, maybe to the extent that it might? And then what are the key challenges that are impacting the way India is looking at sustainable development?
1: So on the first question, yes, I'll go so far as to say I think the country's prioritize trying to be a champion uh, at a global level around uh, a lot of lot of sustainable initiatives for example india has grown to be now one of the top five countries in terms of uh, renewable and solar energy generation which has increased by around two and a half times in the past what ten in the past decade or so and now has about 150 gigawatts of power that we're doing through solar in fact one of the largest airport in india a fully solar airport. So at the scale of an international airport, they've managed to get full sustainability in so that they have an offsite solar farm that produces all of the energy that's really required to power the entire airport. We're also, you know, I think we're ranked number three right now in terms of the total square footage of lead projects globally. So there is, I mean, you know, there is a big push. But I think development in India possesses a few unique challenges that we do have to think of, especially when we come to scale. So Scale of growth, for example, we're a country right now that is developing or in the stage of going from what was traditionally, uh, you know, I'll say a developing country to slowly start to get more affluent in in its day to day. So therefore, what that means is while we've made all of these investments into solar, this total solar output accounts for maybe around 7% of the country's solar needs. Uh, So it's, it's still a small number. So therefore, any reduction that we have right now, say, in the burning of coal or just the reliance on coal to be able to produce power is going to come at the expense of growth. So, or is going to come at the expense of poverty alleviation. So, I know it's a delicate conversation to have because um, there are valid arguments essentially on both sides of that. second is we do have to make certain foundational and fundamental changes to our infrastructure. There is a big push right now in the Indian economy to really try to buy electric vehicles. Uh, But the study conducted essentially Outlined that if the power that's using to charge these electric vehicles is generated from coal in the technologies that we have today in India, electric vehicles can end up producing greenhouse gases in excess of what a traditional petrol or a diesel car would. It doesn't mean we don't make the shift in mindset toward electric vehicles, but we do have to fix our infrastructure so that you know our, the power that we're using to charge those electric vehicles is also more sustainable. Um, and then the third is really around you know unintended consequences. I mean, a big part of uh, India has been its strong labor force and with the whole idea towards automation. So for example, you know driverless cars is something that's being looked at very heavily in the West if that comes to fruition, there's 10 million taxi drivers in India. You know, Sadly, the numbers of people that you're impacting and their livelihoods that you're impacting is huge at the scale of the country that we're looking at. None of this means that we don't drive towards the kind of future that we're all uh, aiming towards, but we also have to very squarely kind of look at what are the challenges that we will have to overcome as well. I think that, that will be very, very critical uh, when we're looking at this
0: growth story. So Shravan, in terms of project types, in the Indian economy, where are we seeing the most um, sustainable development happening? So, there are a few
1: sectors in which this is happening. I'll kind of underscore this idea of sustainable development in India with the idea that India's never really been, especially in you know, post post-colonial post-independence, India um, India's never been a land of plenty. I mean, we've never come from this idea of we have a lot of everything and so we have to try to optimize on how we use things. Judicious use of resources and reuse is something that's really ingrained deeply into the culture for Indians. So, you know, these kind of things do come quite naturally in terms of as we're starting to see things and, you know, see things develop. In addition, I think the bigger move that's happening in the country as well, especially because of the geopolitical climate that we have now, to kind of enhance this idea of um, self-reliance and the focus on local manufacture, I think these kind of principles kind of will probably lay the foundation for the kind of um, sustainable development that we're seeing happening. And the sectors actually You know, there there are many, many sectors in which this is kind of happening. So one is, of course, commercial real estate. Um, We we remain a country that that has now probably... I think somewhere between 30 to 40% of our people are in the service industry. So it's a high service industry economy now. And what that means is commercial real estate development to support that service industry is a big, big part of it. Now, the big opportunity that we have in India, especially is that, you know, we have our first kind of commercial real estate boom came around the late 90s to the turn of the century uh, in a lot of the tier one cities, uh, which if you kind of Look at it from an age standpoint today that building stock is looking to come around 20 to 25 years um, where they've been designed for 50 years or so. And so the idea of being able to take this real estate and be able to reposition it, bring it back in a sense so that it can continue to be a responsible part of that community for the years going forward, I think this is a big, big sector. In fact, here in, in the Bangalore Mumbai offices of, of Gensler, I think we've identified this as one of the things that we really want to try to focus on over the next 10 years or so. It is going to be a, It is going to be a sector that's going to require a high level of specialization and we really want to try to be there.
0: Shravan, talk about the benefits of that for a second, just from the standpoint of embodied carbon. Explain that concept a little bit.
1: So basically what that means is when we're looking at, so what is happening a lot of days nowadays is... When a company comes in and says, okay, I want an office campus um, and they would like to be able to develop their own kind of office campus, they're really looking at new developments, which of course means new construction. Um, In India, a lot of that construction happens with concrete. Uh, We still are a labor uh, inexpensive market. Um, A lot of that construction isn't steel yet. So it's all reinforced concrete. So So there's a lot of natural resources that get taken and a lot of carbon that gets emitted in the process of, you know, making of cement, making of, you know, extracting a lot of the Aggregates, uh, extracting sand from riverbeds, uh, mixing all of that together, casting all of that in place. So there's all of this that happens. Versus what traditionally would happen is there would have been a building that's maybe 25 years old. It doesn't have, it doesn't bring in the kind of rents or the kind of doesn't have the kind of premium feel, say, a, a high-end corporate would want from their campus. But for us then to be able to go back, that structure, as per Indian codes, has been designed for at least 50 years. So, given that it's been designed to withstand, be you know, uh, be resilient for that long, for us to be able to go back and repurpose the building just by maybe changing the facades out, looking at the programming, changes the, changing the interior finishes out, whereas maintaining the structure, which is in perfect structural health, makes sure that we, A, take less resources from the overall environment and generate a lot less carbon um, in the process. So, I think, you know, from that standpoint... Um, Trying to revitalize some of these old building stock to be able to then be taken up by the kind of clients that would want to take um, new space up in India. I think that becomes a big, big opportunity for us to save on a lot of carbon. Another big area is, and this is probably equally exciting is that there's a lot of development happening in tier two cities. Now, India, having a number of cities that it does have, has this first category of tier one cities, which is, you know, the usual suspects, the Delhi, the Mumbai, the Chennai, the the Bangalore, uh, which have been all of the, uh, which has been a lot of where the development has really been focused um, from a commercial real estate standpoint. But then it's really getting into these tier two cities now, cities like Lucknow and Indore and Chandigarh and all of these places. There is a dual phenomenon that's happening as far as developers from these locations are concerned. One is um, they come from a a smaller scale, but b, the kind of people who are heralding these development companies in these are in these locations also tend to be quite a lot younger. So they have this fire energy and passion to really try to outdo their tier one counterparts and really want to be able to do things that are sustainable. And they do tend to be quite sophisticated, which is really great to see as well. So our ability to kind of partner with them to be able to provide differentiated real estate product in the market that does do all of these things in a way that enhances their brand. I think that's a that's a big area for us to look at as well. And then there's a third, which really is, I'll say it's a niche sector, but has huge impact. And that's really about heritage structure restoration. So again, you know, the idea of experience and how do you create unique experiences, um, be it around culture, be it around travel and tourism today, uh, means that People are essentially looking at what were otherwise abandoned structures, structures that were not being used, that have some of the other historical or cultural value really starting to be brought back, you know, in terms of um, and, and getting restored. And this becomes very critically important. So a really good example is what we were doing with Samsung here in in Bangalore. Uh, there was this place called the Opera House, which was a place where kind of staged and all of that it was kind of a Bangalore cultural uh, landmark didn't get used for the past 20, 25 years, I think. Uh, and, and it was just lying there vacant. Um, Samsung decided to take it up for its retail store, which is, you know, in, in traditional cultural senses is, is not the best way for, uh, heritage structures to be used always, but we really took that on as an opportunity, restored the building back to what it, you know, the, the kind of crown jewel within that street that it was. It's I think it remains to date one of our most complimented projects. Uh, I've had Bangaloreans tell me when I've told them that, you know, we've designed the Samsung Opera House. Um, they've literally said, thank you for giving this back to the city. So it's, it's really um, it, it's a really positive uh, you know, thing that we're seeing in terms of opportunities of where we could have both sustainable and cultural impact.
0: That's a wonderful project actually for what it does to preserve that heritage structure, the sustainability aspect of it, the experience that provides inside, but also uh, what happens outside the building and sort of the urban plaza that was provided and so on. It really is a a wonderful complement to that area of the city. And so along those lines and, and along the lines of living in cities, um, have you seen a difference in the way that people are living in cities?
1: It's so great to see that, you know, especially um, in the urban sphere where things are kind of going away from the natural ways that we were living in, say the villages, farmlands, all of that slowly starting to come back. So, for example, huge uh, spurt in the field of managed suburban farming. So what they're doing is or what a lot of people are doing is you can lease or buy a plot of land outside of the city. It is managed for you. They'll kind of grow, grow produce on it for you um, and then deliver the produce to you on the weekends. So you have a chance to be able to grow your own food even if you are living within, say, the city parameters or city, um, the city centers, so to speak, which don't allow you the land to be able to do that. Then there's a lot of cottage industries that are also kind of emerging around this, So um, especially around a global lifestyle. So wine different kinds of breads like sardos focaccia all kinds of cheeses um, even kombucha industries Um, there's really this whole thing of how do we really start to make local what we enjoy from global so rather than having say A mozzarella that's been imported all the way from Italy? Can we make great mozzarella here itself? Um, And so there's a lot of that that's happening. Um, There's a lot of drive that's happening around that. Now, one advantage or one opportunity that does kind of arise for us there is. A lot of these places are starting to try to integrate experiences. So for example, a local winery uh, or a local vineyard is trying to get the startings of a wine tour really integrated into their um, in, you know, integrated into their manufacturing. And so for us to be able to come in um, and really be able to, as you know, experts around what would make for great human experiences, for us to be able to come in and really inform these experiences as well in an economical way so that people can come and connect to how their food is being made, how their drinks are being made, um and, and really, you know, kind of reinforce that connect back to nature. I think that's going to be a big, big thing um that we're starting to see that we could really ride on the wave of. Another um, area where this is really starting to kind of show itself is, um, you know, this forward integration that's happening with uh, agri products uh, here in South and uh, here in India, uh, with the second generation really coming in from traditional of traditional companies. So there's this example of um, Cafe Coffee Day. Um, They used to be just, uh, you know, they they had they had a lot of plantations. They still have a lot of plantations, um, coffee plantations where they would kind of um, harvest the coffee from, um, roast it, grind it sell the powder off essentially um, to consumers when when the second generation kind of came in they started to think well why don't we Instead of selling a bag of powder, why don't we start selling brewed cups of coffee? And that's where the idea of um, you know the the coffee house format or the coffee shop format that that now has become so famous really started to come into India through a homegrown brand as well. So Cafe Coffee Days is, um, is, is a big example of that. In South India is a big hub for growth of coffee, so there are similar chains like that that have started to come in. You know, third wave coffee roasters, Blue Tokai, um, Aruku Coffee, and all of these are places that are. Premium In their execution, they, even though they're local, um, there is a lot of traction for, uh, you know, for their success uh, because uh, the people of, you know, the, pe- the people around here, they feel so strongly about these brands. Um, and it's great to kind of see the growth and the, that they're getting as, how, as places of premium uh, coffee or destinations of premium coffee.
0: Yeah, fascinating that um, quality of life translates to quality of experience, translate to quality of you know, food and beverage, and inevitably that's got to lead to better health. It's, uh, it's a great trend as far as I'm concerned. We've started to hear a lot over the last couple of years about environmental, so, social, and uh, corporate governance, so ESG. And it seems like for most of our clients, um, their ESG goals are, are really um, top of mind. We We hear about them a lot well two things why do you think that esg has really come to the forefront at this moment and then what uh, what value can design bring to esg and uh, helping to achieve esg goals
1: it's it's an interesting question in terms of you know um, why companies are going in for this now honestly it seems like you know it's an It's an idea at the right time for a lot of these various companies. It does provide them a way to get a few different kinds of things done. One is to really set their brand in the local communities um, as being responsible kind of um, members of that community becomes really important. Um, It's a great way to kind of show their goodwill gestures and their values to talent as well. What is happening in India in a sense is you do have, you know, earlier probably um, with with even the millennial generation or the early millennial generation, mid 80s, people who were born in the mid 80s or so. um, Salary was a big driver. Um, Pay was a big driver as to where you'd go and join. But now, especially with the the younger guys coming in, people born through the 90s or even the early 2000s, um, as they're starting to come into the workforce, value alignment is becoming a big thing for them, making, you know, the kind of places that they want to go and work for should be the kind of places that whose values they support. And so ESG also becomes a great way to be able to kind of demonstrate um, for these companies what their values are. So in that sense, it's it's you know, it's it's I think it's an idea that's come to fruition at the right time as far as this economy is concerned. It's a confluence of different things that have that have kind of brought it together um, as an as an idea whose time has come. I think in terms of um, you know why, what they're trying to look at, or you know in terms of uh, why is it so important? So why is it so important to them now? What can design really do to help that? Um, I think making sure that a again, as we started off in the beginning, there are a lot of different goals that these companies have really around ESG, right? So um, the idea of looking at holistic community from sustainability, wellness, diversity, different kind, how do you engage the community, all of that, all of these aspects. While the goals are there, how can their developments really start to land that for them is going to be important. Um, so for example, we were doing this um, visioning session for this particular tech company for their large campus development. And we came out with this idea that they should essentially have a four-tiered campus campus a support to a two-tiered campus. A two-tiered campus or a normal campus is typically you have the visitor's realm and then you have the, the employee's realm. And then we said that, no, why don't we try to look at four realms instead, which is the community realm, the family realm, then the visitor realm, then the employee realm. So to have... A more porous kind of an interface with the outer community in a way that is more meaningfully contributing uh, to that community, I think is, is, you know, is very important. So having that conversation of how we can land some of these ideas of how they can practically look at um, initiatives around ESG um, and be able to integrate that into their day-to-day, I think is very, very important. The other thing I think is just you know kind of going back to what the larger trend was was really around data um, and how we can um, and how we can use data and technology, evolving technology, but also leverage said technologies for the betterment of the community. So we have another client um, that we work with here in, that we are developing a campus for in India in india for example ultrasounds are very controlled in terms of where you can get an ultrasound where is a machine installed there are a lot of regulations around it and so as a result of that a lot of the people around rural areas etc they can't they don't have access to these kind of med- medical facilities very easily and what this company decided to do was they had a bunch of ultrasound machines that they needed for testing internally within their company itself they were trying to figure out ways that they could open up leverage those machines to do camps right for these employees um or not for these employees sorry for the for the people from these underprivileged communities that didn't have access to this and so that suddenly started to open out or you know kind of established their brand as a brand that cares and is someone that, you know, someone who really wants to make an impact in the local community. So even in terms of evolving, be it evolving technologies, be it um, evolving policies, um, how they can be leveraged to try to do better for the community at a more practical day-to-day way, I think is something that a lot of companies are looking at.
0: Well, Shravan, this has been great. Thank you for all of your insights into the kind of climate action initiatives that are happening in India. Uh, it's very encouraging. I think India's got uh, a lot of development ahead of it, and it would be great to uh, see it continue to develop in a more sustainable way. So we appreciate that very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add about climate action and sustainable design before we uh, wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think there's was just one thing, and this is kind of like a personal dream of mine. Whenever I see, uh, whenever I look out into nature in general, you know, before kind of humans came in, the only energy source that we had was the sun, really, right? It's, everything came from the sun and it just blows my mind whenever I look at the level of design that's there in nature to leverage how the, you know, how the incident energy of the sun is converted to all of the different phenomena that happen from, you know, from lightnings to winds to, you know, to flow of water to rains and condensation. This, I mean, there's just so much that happens just around that one source of energy that adds in. I think my personal vision for us as humanity would really be to learn as much of that as possible from nature and really try to become a true solar economy. Because I found that, you know, the sun is probably the one resource that... We will actually never run out of, Um, and so if if we can really try to learn from nature and go towards becoming as much of a solar economy as possible, I I know it might it won't come true in my lifetime, but I hope we we kind of make strides um, towards that, Um, and that's yeah that's kind of like my dream. I just want to throw that out there.
0: Well, thanks, Shravan. That's inspiring. And uh, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, I've been talking with Shravan Bendapudi, who's Regional Practice Area Leader for Consulting and Real Estate and is also a Studio Director for Gensler Bangalore. I'm David Calkins. Thank you very much. And we'll see you on the next podcast.